reading, reading through a lot of lists of places, names of places, Hebrew names of places. It's a lot of fun, a bit challenging, but let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you again for your word, Lord. What a marvel, what, a, what an amazing way you have chosen to communicate with us in such a way, Lord, that we know it's you, that we can be assured that our God, who is outside of time and, and space and, and any dimension that we can conceive of, could speak into our tiny bubble of time and could verify your communication through the prophets and through all that you've done in history, and we are so thankful for that. And I pray that our eyes will be open again today to see truly that you are a faithful God. We declare that today, not simply because we wish it to be so, not because we're trying to convince ourselves, but Lord, you have proven again and again and again that you are a faithful God. And that gives us great peace, it is our living hope. It gives us, Lord, eternal joy to know you and to see your faithfulness. So open our eyes, Lord, by your word this morning. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 16. Let me get comfortable. <clears throat> Ready? Joshua chapter 16. Then the lot for the sons of Joseph went from the Jordan at Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east into the wilderness, going up from Jericho through the hill country to Bethel. It went from Bethel to Lutz. It continued to the border of the Archites at Adarot. It went down westward to the territory of the Japhletites, as far as the territory of Lower Bethoron, even to Gezer, which is where the retirement home was. And it ended at the sea. The sons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. Now, this was the territory of the sons of Ephraim according to their families. The border of their inheritance eastward was Adarot Adar, as far as upper Bethoron. Then the border went westward to Mikmatat on the north, and the border turned about eastward to Teanat Shiloh and continued it to the east of Yanoa. It went on from Yanoa to Adarot and to Naara and then reached Jericho and came out at the Jordan from Tapua. You all know where that is. The border continued westward to the brook of Cana and it ended at the sea. This is the inheritance of the sons of Ephraim according to their families together with the cities which were set apart for the sons of Ephraim in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. But they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, because again, they're cantankerous there. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. I'm gonna read chapter 17 as well, but if you want to, you might wanna jump back and forth between these chapters and your Bible map. Most of you will have a Bible map in the back that will show you this exact layout, so you, know, you can know right where Ephraim is and where Manasseh is as we're going through and looking at the borders. That's laid out in most of our Bibles. Chapter 17, verse one, now this was the lot for the tribe of Manasseh. For he was the firstborn of Joseph. 
to Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted, Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. So something about this Machir, this guy was a fighter. So the lot was made for the rest of the sons of Manasseh according to their families, for the sons of Abietzer and for the sons of Halech, and for the sons of Asriel, for the sons of Shechem, and for the sons of Hefer, and the sons of Shemida. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. However, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. These are the names of his daughters. Mahla and Noah, okay, that's cool. Hagla, well, of course she'd be named Hagla. Her granddad was Hefer. <laughs> it's kind of a farming family, I don't know. Hagla, Milka, and Terza. And they came near before Eliezer the priest and before Joshua the son of Nun and before the leaders saying, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. So according to the command of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Thus, there fell 10 portions to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is beyond the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons. And the land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the sons of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh ran from Asher to Mikmatat, as well, which was east of Shechem. And then the border went southward to the inhabitants of Entapua. The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the sons of Ephraim, the border went down to the brook of Cana, southward of the brook. These cities belonged to Ephraim among the cities of Manasseh, and the border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook, and it ended at the sea. South side belonged to Ephraim, the north side to Manasseh, and the sea was their border. And they reached to Asher on the north and to Issachar on the east. In Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Betshan and its towns, and Ibleim and its towns, and the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, and the inhabitants of Teanach and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns. The third is Naphet. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. Let's pause there. And we're gonna come back at the end of 17 and continue on on Wednesday night. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Listen to that again. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Joshua 13 through 21, and we just began into this section, this third part of the book of Joshua, we began on Wednesday night, and it is Israel's legal title and deed to the promised land, written out, copied again and again for 3,500 years, who has a right to the land? Israel's got the title deed. And God is so specific and so clear with cities and regions and borders and boundaries. He lays the whole thing out so that here we are 3,500 years later and this isn't just a bunch of names of weird places we haven't heard of and can't find on a map. This is God's title given to Israel. No one else has a title to the land like Israel does going back all the way to Joshua as these things were, were meted out to the people. 
And it is a written document, not only of, of a title deed for the people, but it is also a document to God's faithfulness. His faithfulness, which we can especially say in this generation because we see Israel right back in their land, which I've told you before is one of the greatest prophetic signs of this generation was the rebirth of Israel in the land. Nothing like it has ever happened. Isaiah tells us, can a land be born in a day? And yet it happened with Israel. And we see God's faithfulness here throughout from 13 to 21 is a testimony of the father's faithfulness. And he is that, he is a faithful father. A faithful father. We're not always the most faithful as human beings. In fact, we sometimes struggle to even understand faithfulness. We look at God and we hear that he is a faithful father and we wonder, what does that exactly mean? He's a faithful father who always does right by his children. There is no occasional with God. He always does right by his children. We don't, which is why sometimes we have trouble understanding that, and we could say it, we can think it mentally, but, but in our hearts, so many still struggle with, well, I know he's a faithful God, but there is no but. There is no following after. He is faithful, period. Yeah, well, in my life, I, he is faithful, a faithful father, whether we understand what he's doing or not. And this is something I, I feel like the Lord's been driving home to us. I'm not sure why, but, but it's come up several times. We may not have understanding as to what he's doing, but that doesn't mean he's any less faithful. It doesn't mean what he's doing isn't absolutely 100% perfectly right in your life and in my life. But Lord, I don't get it. He is a faithful father. And I really think if we can lock into that truth, it will change a lot of our attitudes when we come into hard times. He's a faithful father. Hey, 2 Timothy 2.13 nails it. If we are faithless, and we are, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And while our God is a faithful father, we can be some messed up kids. Right, One great big dysfunctional family. And I'm not talking about the world. Bible's clear, the, the world is not the family of God. The world is the creation of God, but the children of God are those who come to him by faith in Jesus. So when I say we're a great big dysfunctional family, yes, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about Christians. But we've seen this before long before the church. And in fact, this section of Joshua could also be called the continuing story of 12 brothers in a typically dysfunctional family line because that's what we see. By the way, family dysfunction has a lot to do with birth order. Firstborns, can you give me an amen on that? Why did you have to be first? Why did you have to blaze the trail for those stupid, snot-nosed kids who followed after you? Right? Oh, well, hey, I'm, that's okay. I'm a second-born myself. Yes. Think about how the first-born, second-born, third-born, even if you just go with three, how different life is, or even for an only-born, it really affects how we live and think and how we view the world and what our parents did. Example, pacifier falls on the floor, and with the first-born child... Mom picks it up, 
rushes over to the sink, turns on the scalding water, makes sure it's completely disinfected, sets it in the cool water until, yeah, but doesn't even touch it because, oh, the germ's on her own hands, and then carefully places it back in firstborn child's little mouth, lovingly. With the second child, Pacifier falls on the floor, she picks it up, quickly runs it under warm water and shakes it or blows on it to be sure that it's cool and gives it back to the child. With the third child. <laughs> Mom picks it up, licks it off, and pops it back in the child's mouth. Right? Fourth child. Fourth child, the dog picks it up chews on it until mom grabs it and tosses it back to the kid. That's got to have an impact on personality, right? According to parents.com, firstborns, see, this is, see if this is you. Maybe it's not. It's okay. Firstborns tend to bask in their pre parents' presence, and so they are characteristically reliable, conscientious, structured, cautious, controlling, achievers. Secondborns, they come along, secondborns and or youngest child, if there's only two in the family, they tend to be fun-loving, uncomplicated, outgoing, manipulative, <laughs> attention-seeking, <laughs> self-centered. Middle children, well, they tend to be people-pleasers. You know, if so there are three in the family and you're the middle child, people-pleasers, they thrive on friendships, they have large social, social circles, they're, they're peacemakers, yet they're ironically rebellious under all of it. And, and that's just one, you know, parent's subscription uh, talking about that. We're gonna deal this morning with first and second borns and look at something that God did that is so amazing because these first and second borns are not as they should have been. They're not what we would have expected. Things get interesting because, see, God flips the birth order. And in flipping the birth order, changes literally everything eternally. Having read through Joshua 16 and 17, we're gonna unpack a few key elements and we're gonna do it in two parts this morning. Just two things that I wanna point out. Part one is the relevancy of the firstborn the relevancy of the firstborn, all right? Let's do a little, uh, a little backtracking here. So the 12 tribes of Israel include, in terms of birth order, Reuben, Shimon, Simeon, uh, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then the youngest, literally by about 10 years, we think, was little Benjamin. So for a long time, Joseph was the youngest brother. 10 years later, it's almost like, I mean, and I, I know this by, by um, personal experience, that when you have different shifts of children, that makes a big difference in the birth order. Hayden is our youngest biological child, but he came along five years after Hannah. So he's got a whole different set of, you know, personality stuff going on there. And then our adopted kids came in, and it, so when you see the distance between that, that makes a difference. So Benjamin came along about 10 years after Joseph. Now, when it comes to the inheritance, you have to take out Levi. So you have 12 sons, have the inheritance of Israel, of Jacob, that now they're gonna receive in the land, but you have to pull out Levi 
because they're the priestly tribe. So the inheritance is, for Levi, their inheritance is the Lord. And I love how Joshua puts that. Before, we had seen that, that Levi's inheritance, you know, it, it is the, the tabernacle and it's gonna be the temple services, but the Lord, I am your inheritance, the Lord says. So they get no land. They do get cities. They get 48 cities that are sprinkled among the 12 tribes. So God's got his pastoral staff throughout Israel, which I think is marvelous. But there's no inheritance. So you pull Levi out and that leaves us with 11 inheritances, right? Well, there needs to be 12. So Joseph, his inheritance gets doubled as given to his sons who are Jacob's grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Right, so now we're back to 12 with Ephraim and Manasseh. You pull Levi out, you pull Joseph out, you put Ephraim and Manasseh in, you have 12 sons. But there's an ancient problem here with, again, a great current and eternal implication. Let me ask you a question. I asked this Wednesday night, and you might not wanna blurt it out because several people got it wrong right out. The question is, when it comes to an inheritance, in Jewish law, Torah law, what portion does a firstborn son get? How much of the inheritance, if there are, say, three sons or four sons, or in this case, 12 sons, what portion does Mr. Firstborn get? Oh, you're so good. See, this is the smart service. <laughs> a double portion. Firstborn son always gets a double portion. Uh, Deuteronomy 21 tells us about that. Deuteronomy 21, verse 15. I, I love this. I just want to read this to you. If a man has two wives, <laughs> the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day that he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved, the firstborn, before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. And that's it. That is in Torah law where the Jewish people get the double portion for the firstborn. Loved or unloved, but God is saying it doesn't matter what the circumstance is of the, of the two kids, of the two boys. Firstborn gets the double portion, period. That is Torah law. But wait a minute. Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. There should be an uncontestable reality that Reuben gets the double portion, but he only gets one. Reuben is given one portion on the east of the Dead Sea. So even down below the Jordan, the Jordan comes down and spills into the Dead Sea, and Reuben is on that side, which would be the, the region of primarily of Moab that is the middle of Jordan today. So they get that area, but just one portion. Why? Genesis 49, verse three. Old Jacob is doling out, and he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. See, that's the description of a firstborn, the position of being firstborn. But Jacob says, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch and Reuben lost firstborn status. He's still the first one born, but he's no longer the firstborn. 
And you gotta make that distinction when you're thinking in terms of the Hebrew scriptures. He is not the firstborn anymore, though he was the first one to be born. Reuben went up and he slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. Why would he do such a thing? To establish preeminence. This was a twisted way of thinking in the culture and Reuben apparently bought into it that if he could sleep with his father's mother, then he takes his father's place. Now he has family authority, but by doing that, he lost it. How many times in our lives do we do something thinking this will secure my place only to lose it? First Chronicles chapter five, verse one says, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, or the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, Judah would be the ruling tribe, and from him came the leader, that ultimately would be Saul and then David and right down the line, yet the birthright the birthright in Israel belonged to Joseph. Genesis chapter 41, verse 50, two sons were born to Joseph in Egypt. Joseph named the first Manasseh, for he said, God made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So Manasseh means forgetful, which I think would be helpful, you know, when Manasseh got older. His wife says, Manasseh, I've told you a dozen times. Yeah, well, you know my name. <laughs> He named the second son, we're told, Ephraim, for God, Joseph said, has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And Ephraim literally means doubly fruitful. So you have fruitful and forgetful. These are the two sons of Joseph. And each one of them get a portion. So there's the two portions. There's the double portion that belongs to the one who is given firstborn status. He's not the first one born, but he gets the firstborn status. And now Ephraim and Manasseh both get a portion. Look at chapter 16, verse four. The sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim received their inheritance. So two boys, two portions, one each. Now this was the territory of the sons of Ephraim. According to their families, the border of their inheritance eastward was at Adarot Adar, as far as upper Bet Horon. Skip down to chapter 17, verse one which says, now this was the lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. Wait a minute. So we already have another problem that's set up here. Suddenly we see Manasseh is the firstborn. Why does Ephraim get their land first? Now it's not just a, 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 an oversight in the writing or the, the scribing of the scriptures. We've said this so many times in here, God is always intentional. The word of God is written as he intended it to be. And so Ephraim gets their land first, though they are second born. Manasseh, well, they, they don't get the land until second, even though Manasseh is firstborn. So it's, it, it may seem a little confusing, but this is a family plot twist. This is a reversal of blessing and to look at it, go all the way back to Genesis 48. Turn back there in your Bibles just for a moment. I'm trying to set up something to understand the, the thinking of God as best as we can. Genesis chapter 48, verse one. 
Genesis, it's, it's um, in, in the list of the books of the Bible, it's the first one. Genesis chapter 48, verse one. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh, that'd be his firstborn, and Ephraim with him. And when it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Note that. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous and I will make you a company of peoples and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. What land? Canaan's land. Verse five, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Israel is speaking and he says, Joseph, your sons are mine. Your sons now are going to be included among my sons in terms of inheritance. Part of the reason may simply have been as far as old Jacob might have been concerned, Joseph doesn't need an inheritance. Joseph's got Egypt, right? He's got it all. He's, he's second only to Pharaoh. What does he need old Jacob's inheritance for? So he gives it to his sons. Again, Manasseh and Ephraim, your offspring, verse six, that have been born after them shall be yours. So any more sons born to Joseph after Manasseh and Ephraim, they shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. And so he goes on and he speaks a bit more about how, uh, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, this is great. The eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. And then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your children as well. And then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward, actually toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right. So he takes his two sons and he goes, here to your, to your left hand, here to your right hand, you guys can figure it out, the right and the left. I never was very good at that until I got into baseball. That helped a bit. So he stretched them out, and it says, and I love this, verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. That crafty old coot, what's he doing here? And, and he blessed Joseph and he said, the God whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, I would say the faithful God. He has been a shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, the angel, the Malach, I think referring to Jesus, Bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
Well, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, <laughs> I know. He will also become a people and will also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. By the way, multitude of nations is melo goyim. Goyim is the Hebrew word for Gentiles. That's interesting that Gentiles would be somehow connected to, or Ephraim would be a picture of Gentiles in the future. He blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. This is not the sleight of hand of a crafty old schemer. This is not Jacob playing tricks like old Jacob would have played. Part of the reason I know this is that Israel is the one giving the blessing. What? Isn't Israel and Jacob the same guy? Listen, Jacob was his name before God renamed him. Jacob, that name meaning heel catcher, Yaakov, because he came out second grasping his brother's heel, grasping Esau's heel, and ultimately stole the birthright from him. He was a scheming, swindling supplanter right from the womb. That's Jacob. God changed his life. Isn't that awesome? God changes a life. God changes me from what I was to what he sees me to be. He changed him to Yisrael, which means God prevails. God prevails. And throughout that chapter, Genesis 48, you're gonna see as, as Israel, or you can see while Israel is talking, he's named nine times in the chapter. Over and over and over, the Bible makes it clear that Israel is the one doing the talking, not Jacob. The new self, not the old self. Why is that important? That it, it indicates the prevailing will of God. This was God's will. This wasn't just a trick. It was the will of God prophetically through Israel that as he blessed the sons, he needed to put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, Ephraim, making it them first and then Manasseh second. So Ephraim, born second, but blessed first. And Ephraim, by the way, became the greater tribe by far. In fact, over history, if you look at your Bible maps, you'll see Ephraim is, it's a decent size, but not that big. And yet, when the kingdom would later split, the 10 northern tribes were often just called Ephraim because Ephraim was so great, so big. It became a massive tribe, much larger than Manasseh in terms of land and influence. And I would submit to you all because the birth order was divinely tweaked. Ephraim becomes first. Not first one born, but the first born. But here's the thing to know, it wasn't the first time. In fact, if you track this with me through the Hebrew scriptures, Cain was first born, born first. Abel was regarded, the second born son. Genesis four, verses three through five. Japheth was actually the first born of Noah, but how do we say the names? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We say Japheth last, but he was the first one born. Genesis 9, 24, Genesis 11, uh, verse 10, 
Japheth was first one born, but it was Shem who got chosen the Shemitic people, the Jews, coming from the line of Shem. In Genesis eleven twenty six, 26, and, and we compare this with Acts chapter seven, verse four, and these verses are just up there. You can check them later. Haran was first one born, but Abram got called. Abraham was not the firstborn son of his father Nahor. It was Haran. And that takes a little digging, but, but you find that to be true. Ishmael was the first son born to Abram, but Isaac got the blessing. And in fact, in Genesis 22, verses two through 16, which is one of the most critical and fascinating chapters in the Bible, the Lord refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son. So it's even more significant that Isaac is the one, Isaac through Abraham and Sarah as God had promised. Then of course, you go along a little bit further. Esau was the first one born, Jacob got the blessing. Some would say stole, I'll give that to you. But he ended up with the blessing, Genesis 25, verses 21 through 26. Tamar, Tamar comes along. She has twin boys by Judah, but that's another sordid tale. She has twin boys named Zerah and Perez. Zerah was the first one born, first one out of the womb, but Perez got the blessing, Genesis 38, verses 27 through 30. Reuben is the first one born. Joseph gets the double portion. Joseph gets blessed, Genesis 48 and 49. Aaron was the firstborn. Moses was called the deliverer. Manasseh here is firstborn, but Ephraim got the blessing. So you track all that down. This has happened over and over and over since the very creation, the first two kids born, there was a mess there. And God was tweaking the birth order ever since then, all the way up to here, Manasseh and Ephraim, Isaiah 55, verse eight, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. But this thought, this action by the Lord down through history is Though astonishing, it has a profound explanation. Are you ready for it? You might want to jot this down. God forgets the first to favor the second. God forgets the first to favor the second. I have tried to explain this to my older brother our whole life. God forgets the first to favor the second. Now, don't get your birth certificate in a wad. Don't try to sterilize your pacifier yet. The truth that emerges here is really not about birth order or favoritism or sibling rivalry. In fact, this truth taps into the most significant issue of our very lives. First of all, note this. For the firstborn, in these templates, we get this eerie portrayal of the flesh. When I say firstborn, I mean the first one born. So Cain, Japheth, Haran, uh, Ishmael, there's something about the flesh that these guys all portray. Cain brought a fruit plate by the work of his hands while Abel brought the firstlings of his flock. Japheth, along with Ham, would produce Gentiles. Ishmael was born of the will of the flesh, not the will of God. Haran never made it out of the pagan Chaldees. Esau despised his birthright for a bowl of soup? Yeah, no soup for you. Zira's lineage, Zira's lineage includes a guy by the name of Achan, the troubler of Israel. 
Achan. Reuben slept with his father's concubine. That, if that's not flesh, I'm not sure what is. Aaron hammered and crafted the golden calf. Manasseh divided as a tribe. Half wouldn't even cross the Jordan to come into the promised land. So all of these guys are pictures of the flesh. Now, some of you might say, well, Rick, can't you point out all kinds of flaws and failures and sins among the second born in these stories as well? Yeah, you can. But there's an emerging biblical picture here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, talking about, of course, Jesus. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So, so the first signifies earthy flesh whereas the second is something heavenly and spiritual. Again, I try to explain this to my brother. The first, earthy flesh. The second, heavenly, spiritual. Here's the point. With the Lord, your firstborn self can never receive the blessing. Jesus put it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, that is, of the flesh, earthy, and the spirit, the, the, the heavenly, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, my firstborn self. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, my secondborn self, or my born-again self. Jesus says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And everyone in this world has been and can be or, or, or is now invited to be born again. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you're a second born. You may be the first one born in your family, but you are a second born child. You're a second born with a firstborn blessing or inheritance. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Second born. Romans 6, verse six, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, firstborn, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from him from sin. Now, in my second born, born again self, I have been set free from sin. John chapter one, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not of the blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God, second born. And what's marvelous about this truth, and, and, and we see God just weaves this into the pages of scripture and into the lineage of very Israel itself, your family line can be radically dysfunctional, but God forgets the first to favor the second. He forgets the where we've come from to favor the where we're going. He forgets the who we were to favor the who we are in Christ Jesus. And that's the relevancy of the first and second born in the scriptures. 
as this picture continues to be replayed again and again, as though the Lord is getting across a point, I want you to understand this. The firstborn becomes irrelevant. Your firstborn fleshly self, your secondborn born again self, that's the one I favor. Part two, part two. So that's the relevancy of the firstborn. The revelation of the firstborn the revelation of the firstborn. So, so God forgets the firstborn to favor the second, but in a more astounding reversal. God gave the firstborn to save the second. And this is the revelation of the firstborn. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus the firstborn, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. In the family of God, and I know you all know this, but let's just underscore that the, there is only one firstborn in the family of God. Only one firstborn. I'm not talking about one, the first one born. That would be Adam in terms of creation. There's only one firstborn. It's not paternally or physically, but positionally. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter one. All the way over to the New Testament, Colossians chapter one. Give you a second to get there. Colossians chapter one. As Paul describes and defines this so beautifully, Colossians one, picking up in verse 13, talking about Jesus, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Wait a minute, that's not true. He's not the first one born of all creation. That would be Adam. So he was born, you know, some 4,000 years in, as opposed to Adam, who was the first one born. But that's not, again, what he's saying. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So you see, he couldn't have been born at all because he created everything. It all went through him. He was preexistent even to the first one born, Adam, though he would be born into the world later. He is before all things, Jesus is, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will have first place in everything. Again, he's not the first one to be resurrected, but he's the firstborn from the dead. For it was God's good pleasure, the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus was not created like Adam. If this is simple for you, that's good, that's good. First Timothy 2.13 tells us that Adam, who was created first, and then Eve. Adam was created first, or literally in the Greek, it's Adam was first created. First created. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. You might make a note of this. It's interesting to me. First created is protos esplaste. Protos esplaste, that is first created or first flesh. 
protoesplastae, and that is where the word protoplasm comes from. Adam is protoplasm, which is really funny to me because the evolutionist has appropriated the word protoplasm to talk about some goo when the reality is the Bible says, no, no, protoplasm means first flesh. Protoplasm applies to Adam in, in creation. So he's the first flesh created, but Jesus, by contrast, is the firstborn. Firstborn, prototokos. Prototokos is the word in Hebrew. Prototokos means first child. First child. Romans 8, 29, Paul uses the word for those whom he foreknew. God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the prototokos of among many brethren. He is the firstborn. Positionally, Jesus is in firstborn position with all rights and rule and, and inheritance and authority of the Father. He is the prototokos, the firstborn among many brethren which draws us into the family of God. So awesome. God uses the culturally significant symbol or picture of the Hebrew firstborn, the Hebrew receiver of the inheritance in all of these reversals that we've looked at so that we could see the blessing coming to the secondborn by the firstborn. The firstborn blesses all of us as secondborns. Why? So that we could understand why God became flesh in the first place. But watch, something else happened to secure the revelation of the firstborn. Verse three, back in Joshua chapter 17, Joshua 17, verse three, we see this familiar story, at least to some of you, however, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza, which I still think are great names. If, 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 you know, for any of our pregnant sisters, think about those names if you have a daughter. Can you imagine being named Hogla in today's, it just, even Milcah, would, but Hogla and Milcah could even go together. I don't know, it's the whole, if you were with us in our study, in Numbers 26 and 27, and then again in Numbers 36, this is now the fourth time that this is repeated. That the story about these girls is, is told again and again and again. Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Terza. Why, why does God repeat this four times? I mean, honestly, it seems somewhat irrelevant to us here 3,500 years later. Okay, they got their inheritance. So what? So this is huge. Talmud says that the daughters of Zelophehad are wise. They are interpreters of verses and they are righteous, which is a Jewish way of saying these girls had it going on. They certainly knew their stuff, which is why they came to Moses in the first place and said, look, we got a problem here because there's no brother for the inheritance. And if there's no brother for the inheritance, then that lineage within Manasseh would die. And there would be no land given, and Manasseh itself would lose land. So this is a big deal to the Jewish people. Verse four, they came near before Eleazar the priest and before Joshua the son of Nun and before the elders saying, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. So according to the command of Yahweh, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. 
Thus there fell 10 portions to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is beyond the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons. And the land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the sons of Manasseh. So you know this, where there is no son because of these daughters of Zelophehad, the inheritance now lawfully goes to the daughter. Keep that in mind. Because the story of these daughters is far more than an ancient example of inheritance law. Now turn in your Bibles, and I hope you don't sprain a finger, turn to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, verse one, tells us the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you stop right there, I've shared before, this is absolutely amazing. Do you realize there is not a Jewish person on earth today who can rightfully prove their inherited line? Because in AD 70, when all of the records that were kept in the temple, when the temple was destroyed, all the genealogical records of Israel were destroyed. There is only one genealogical record of a Jew in recorded history that remains to this day, and it's Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter one, Luke chapter three, we see the genealogy repeated from two different perspectives, and Matthew says this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. But down in verse 16, note this. So you go from Abraham down, he starts with Abraham and runs down, runs through David, comes all the way down to verse 16 to Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And in English, that can be confusing because it sounds like, Joseph is Jesus' father. Jesus, Joseph, Joseph, who is the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. Would be, we would think, okay, so that's Joseph and Mary together are the parents of Jesus. This is funny. Our, our world is so pronoun challenged right now. I mean, I thought English was difficult when I was in school as a kid, right? Now, so you cannot keep track of what pronoun someone wants to be called. It's crazy, but here in the Greek language, it is so specific, there's no denying what is being said. What do you mean? Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom, whom is a pronoun, by whom, not by they, by whom Jesus was born. Whom, this is crystal clear, whom is in the feminine singular form. It has to be Mary. By whom refers to Mary, not Joseph. Normally, if you're talking about a father, a husband and wife and their child, it would say by whom and by whom would be in the masculine. But it's in the feminine, so it can only refer to Mary by whom Jesus was born. And that's critical to understand. Isaiah 7, 14, it was prophesied, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Luke chapter two, verse 34. Remember when, when Gabriel came to Mary and she's, she's all freaked out about this. She says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Joseph has nothing to do with this. 
God is going to make this happen. You know all that. What in the world does that really have to do with Zelo's daughters? Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus through the lineage of Joseph. Okay, so this is Joseph's lineage until you get down to Mary, and it says by whom, Mary, by whom Jesus was born. But up until then, all the way down to, to, to Joseph, this is Joseph's legal line. Joseph, who we could say is the stepfather to Jesus because he's not the biological father of Jesus. And this is the legal line of Joseph, which shows us, Matthew's trying to explain to us, Jesus had the legal right as heir to the throne of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Your house, God says to David, and your kingdom shall endure before me, and your throne shall be established forever, which means Joseph, as the stepfather of Jesus, the legal father of Jesus on earth, could pass that inheritance along to Jesus, which is great, except you Bible students know there's a problem. In that line, if you look at verse 11 of Matthew chapter 1, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud and you continue on down and that is the lineage of Joseph which he passes along as a legal right to his stepson, Jesus. Why is that a problem? Jeconiah is also called Jehoiakim or Coniah and plausibly Jerkaniah. He was Judah's second to last king and he was a bad dude. He was so evil, God himself cursed Coniah. He, he, he was 18 years old when he came. This, this shows you that you can be a young man and, and, and be evil. Jeconiah was 18 years old when he ascended to the throne and he reigned three months. Three months, that's all he lasted. Now, that's longer by double than Britain's recent prime minister, but let's not go there. <laughs> Jeconiah was a bad dude. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24, here's the curse. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Jeremiah 22, 30, thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. Well, he did end up having children, didn't he? I would say yes, by the grace of the Lord, but the curse remains. No man, God said, no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. No one could do it, which means Joseph, though he would have a legal right to the throne, he was in the cursed line and God would not allow it. Joseph could never ascend to the throne because God cursed Jeconiah and none of his line following him could rise to Judah's throne ever again. Joseph's out and all his sons are out. That line was cursed. But listen to Luke's different genealogy of Jesus. You can turn there or just listen. I'm just gonna give you a verse. Luke chapter three, verse 23, which runs through verse 38, but it says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then it goes on to say, the son of Eli, 
It's not a, wait a minute, wait a minute. Matthew says that the, that Jacob was the father of Joseph, not Ellie. Who's Ellie? Mary's father. Ellie is Mary's father. That, that phrase, son, can either mean son or it can also mean son-in-law. So you, you have the genealogy in Luke, which is actually Mary's genealogical line, and then you have the genealogy in Matthew, and that's Joseph's genealogical line, but of course, Joseph's line is cursed. You see where this is going? You got a cursed line, and you have a, a pure line. So Luke gives us the lineage through Mary, and Matthew agrees by whom Jesus was born, but Mary's line also runs back to David, just as Joseph's line runs back to David, but Joseph's line runs back to David through his son Solomon, whereas Mary's line runs back to David through, her son, through his son Nathan, Nathan. So that's where the split is. You have David, Solomon, Nathan, and the two lines would then continue on until you get down to Joseph and Mary. And Mary has a pure line. Mary, by whom Jesus was born. What does that mean? That means the Holy Spirit bypassed the cursed line that landed at Joseph and gives Jesus the equally valid biological right to rule and reign on David's throne. Now, I, maybe that doesn't thrill you, but I read that and I go, that is so cool how God did that. But some could still factually argue, yeah, hang on a second, though, it's still messy. Mary was a woman with no inheritance right by Torah law. It should go to one of her brothers. Wrong. Mary had no brothers. Mary only had sisters or a sister. We know at least of one sister of Mary, and that is Salome. So you have Mary and Salome and no brothers, but thanks to the obscure ruling <laughs> in favor of Zelophehad's daughters 1,500 years earlier, now the inheritance of Eli, Mary's father, legally passes to Mary and legally then passes to her firstborn son, Jesus. God's got it all figured out perfectly. He doesn't miss a trick Jesus the Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation chapter five, verse five. That's the revelation of the firstborn. Mary's firstborn son by physical birth, but son of God by both his nature and now his inherited right as he came into the world and was born son of Mary. Now, for all that, some might say, well, okay, so... Joseph's basically irrelevant. Any of you dads or husbands just feel irrelevant sometimes? Why am I even here? You know, I, I walk in the door and I find out something that the family is about to do that evening. And I'm like, no one told me why am I even here? Irrelevant, useless. And so you look at Joseph and go, well, you know, basically, he's irrelevant to the, to the birth story of Jesus. I mean, come on, man. That's a little disappointing. Christmas is coming, you know, it's gonna mess up some manger scenes. If Joseph's irrelevant, why even put him in the scene? Let me throw you a pacifier. <laughs> Joseph is absolutely relevant in spite of the curse of Coniah because there was one more stipulation for the daughters of Zelophehad. Do you remember what that was? Numbers 36, verse six. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. 
Mary and Joseph were both of the line of Judah. And because they both were of the line. See, this is the relevance that Joseph, and I'm so glad as a father and a husband, the relevance of Joseph comes into the picture. Mary had to marry into the line of Judah for her inheritance that she received through her father, no brothers, to be applied then to her son. She had to be married within the line of Judah. Joseph was of the line of Judah. That's why Matthew and Luke give us both genealogies. So now we see this and we understand Mary and Joseph of the tribe of Judah. And I'm saying all of this this morning to very simply say God doesn't miss anything. If he is that meticulous with the bringing of his son into the world perfectly through this Jewish law, do you think maybe he's meticulous with your life? I think maybe God is aware of the incidentals of the little thing, the little hurts, the tiny little scrapes, the bumps, the wounds, the heartaches, the joys, the, 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 the plans. What do you say? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God forgets your firstborn self to favor the second. And he gave his firstborn, Yeshua, to save all us secondborns. Bible says, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So whatever your lineage, whatever the, the family background or the family line, and this, this is very meaningful to me, having adopted kids, because I can say this to my children, that that family line, yes, you came from that. Yes, you have, you have Ghanaian heritage. That's important. We want you to remember that. But it becomes irrelevant because your true inheritance comes through Jesus. And that's where God looks at you as a father has compassion on his children. But for you and for me, it's, it's not only our line, it's our background, it's our sins. It's the sins committed against us by others. All of that stuff, that's first one born stuff. I'm a second born now. I'm born again. And God wipes all that away. It's not your doing. You can't get free of it yourself. This is why psychology doesn't work. While all the therapy and counseling in the world will not restore your rightful place, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And Peter adds, in the last time. Guess what? That's now. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Our salvation is on the verge of being revealed in a way that we have never known. And so I ask you this morning, have you been born again? Are you in your second self, your, your born again self, trusting in and, and believing in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Sometimes secondborns sin like firstborns. You know why? It's because sometimes secondborns are still clinging to their first flesh self. When you give your life to Jesus, you've got to let go. 
You've got to stop clinging to the old life, the old ways, the old hurts, the old heritage, all the old stuff. You have been born again. And so Hebrews 10, 23 again says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Amen. Amen. 